Thank you, guys. Um, well, before we get started, I want to, uh, well, there's still some food over there, some great food. Thank you for bringing in food and some coffee. You might need a little breather at the moment, no running. That's what I heard. Um, as you kind of take a little breather, if you can take a pit stop, get something to eat uh, or get a refill, here's what I want you to talk about with some people around you right now for a few minutes. Very deep, uh, thought-provoking thing. Which superhero is the best? Is it Batman, Superman, or Spider-Man? I said three, and I held up two fingers. I don't do ad. And which one is it, and why? So talk amongst yourselves for a few minutes, get a refill, and we'll meet back in just a sec. So as you begin to bring it back in, I'm just curious, by a show of hands... Batman. Yes. Okay. All right. And by a show of hands, how many were Spider-Man? Spider-Man's not getting a lot of love. I see that hand. Okay. And Superman. Okay. I'm going to tell you why you're wrong in just a second. How many, how many write-ins did we have? I know, I know there's a lot in the Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman falls into the Superman category. I'll tell you why in just a second. Aquaman talks to fish. That's it. He could swim for a long time. I could with a tank. The Flash, enemy of Apple. What else? Ah, you like that? Huh? Thor was a good movie. Steve Jobs. Game over. American hero. I don't even know what that means right now. Do I know that? That's good. MacGyver. Okay. So, it's all kind of a preferential thing, but I want to tell you this morning, it's very important that we talk about why Spider-Man is the only biblical superhero, okay? Here's why. Michael says this is going to be good. Probably not. We could probably just skip this part. Um, Superman was born all godlike, okay? And only Jesus is God and born as a man, so... He's probably the Antichrist or possessed or something. So Superman's out. I mean, come on. Uh, that also takes one woman out of the situation. You know, we don't need superhero that flies. Batman has no powers, okay? So he's kind of out, right? He's got, he's kind of a spoiled rich kid that, uh, you know, poor steward of his funds. He does some cool things. But Batman has no powers. Can we just face that, right? It's hero, but it's maybe not super hero. So Spider-Man is the only biblical superhero, and here's why. Okay? He was ordinary man transformed into something powerful by something powerful. See where that goes? He has spidey sense, okay? Which is a frilly term for the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and we'll see it in Acts 17. Okay? Acts 17, 16, we see Spidey Sense in action in the Bible. And he has been given powers to save people's lives. 
it happens in the Bible frequently. Here's, here's where we're at. So um, this is really irrelevant to pretty much anything, but just a good segue into the power of the Holy Spirit this morning and where we want to go because we're going to talk about the gospel a lot. So I do want to make sure that you have notes with you. If you don't have a note sheet, please let us know so you can take some notes. It's a lot more likely that you're going to remember um, the scripture that's discussed today if you're writing down notes about it. On the note sheet, uh, there's a QR code to find that you can scan with your um, smart device and um, find the outline for expanded notes. Uh, anybody need notes? Some notes over there. Thank you. Uh, and if you don't, if you don't want to go through that outline today while we, um, while I'm teaching, it'll be online shortly at thegatheringnow.com. And really, always encourage you guys to go through the to go through the outline and to see the expanded pieces of this and personally study through it yourself. Um, God's teaching me a ton through this passage and about the gospel, but I want him I want that to translate to you too. So there might be you might need to do some of that work on your own on the side. So let's get rolling. Here's here's my thought about this. Christians, people that are transformed by the gospel of Jesus, are a lot like Spider-Man, and here's why. You can kind of map, you image the things that I just said about him. We were ordinary men and women, okay? We were transformed by something powerful into something new. It wasn't in us. It became us, and it, it became inside of us. Uh, we are filled with new power, the Holy Spirit. This is an important framework for the morning. Um, if you'll recall John 14, 26, Jesus says... I'm going to ask the Father to send His Holy Spirit, and He is going to fill you up and be your helper. And that might be the most, one of the most encouraging passages in all of Scripture, that God, in spirit form, fills the believer to be a helper, to lead, to speak, to, to guide us through our steps. It's very important to remember this morning. In Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, Paul tells us that upon salvation... God fills us with his spirit and he seals us as his eternal possession. So we're filled with new power of the Holy Spirit. And then last way we're kind of like Spider-Man is, is we are enabled to deliver a message that saves. Okay? By that power. The Holy Spirit enables us to deliver a powerful message that saves. Now the things here is, is it us that saves? With the message of Jesus? No. Is it the power that's within us that came from the Holy Spirit and the power that's a part of that gospel of Jesus? Yes. And that's where we're, that's the framework of the whole entire morning. So I want to go ahead and tell you the big idea. You can fill that in. I think it's at the top of your page. It's that the gospel does the work. The gospel does the work. Okay? The gospel does the work. Romans 1.16. Anybody know it? Romans 1.16. And jot this down. It's, it's that I am not, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power to save. It is the power which, by which God saves mankind. It is the power. So here's the implications of this. Uh, here's the implications. Well, first, the gospel is what? It's the story of how God redeemed 
all of mankind through Jesus. Okay? We all needed a Redeemer because we were all sinners, and you're going to hear the gospel a lot this morning. So just to, to frame that in case, I don't want to work on the assumption that some of you in the room this morning are not believers in Jesus. And that is okay, and I'm glad that you're here, and you're going to hear the message Jesus a lot. But I want to work on the assumption that uh, we're going to have a mixed bag this morning. Or maybe that you're coming in with some religious baggage and you don't quite understand the gospel of Jesus this morning. So it is the story of how God redeems humanity to himself. And if the big idea is that the gospel does the work, then we need to look at some implications of this. So here are the implications when we say the gospel does the work. That means we don't do the work. Okay? We don't do the work. It means we might be God's messengers, but salvation doesn't hinge on us. It means that the truth is the truth of the gospel, not the effectiveness of the messenger that saves souls. Let me say that again. It's the truth of the gospel, not the effectiveness of the messenger that saves souls. We are imperfect messengers with a perfect message. Another implication of this is that we don't draw men to God. Who draws men to God? God draws them himself. Jesus tells us that. If you want to write it down, John 6, 44. It says, nobody comes to me except the ones that God draws to himself. We don't draw them in. God does. So the big idea means that we can exhale. Can it just, does that help you breathe? It helps me breathe a little bit easier because I don't have the weight of salvation on my shoulders. Jesus took care of that, and he holds it up, and he fills me with his spirit and says he's here to help me, and he just wants me to be an obedient messenger. Um, whether or not someone is saved is not up to us. It's not accomplished by us. So the one who rejects the gospel does not reject us. Okay? That's our framework for the entire morning, the gospel. So we want to look. We're, gonna, we're in um, Acts 17. Okay? We are going from verse 16 to the end of the chapter, which is verse 34. And if you don't have a Bible this morning and you want a Bible... Um, We've got some floating around. If anybody needs one, just let us know. Or share with, uh, share with somebody beside you if they don't have one with them. If you don't have one and you would like one, we will um, be happy to give you one. Just find us afterwards. So you can open up to Acts 17. And we kind of got this broken up into four chunks. Okay? Um, and your notes will reflect that. The first one is that the truth of the gospel is universal. The truth of the gospel is universal. And let's read the corresponding scripture, Acts 17, 16 through 17. You ready? The truth of the gospel is universal. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing a city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And we can almost kind of stop there because um, there's a lot to unpack there and a lot of implications for us. But again, the truth of the gospel is universal. Um, did you catch spidey sense in the passage? Yeah? Okay. Let's read it again. His spirit was being provoked within him. The Holy Spirit was welling up inside of Paul 
saying, look at all these idols in this city. Here's what I want you to say about that. Um, I guess a little bit of backstory, and Paul shared last week, uh, we're getting to this point in Acts where it's kind of a lot of um, lather, rinse, repeat going on with Paul. He's going into a city, he's sharing the gospel. Some say yay, some say nay. They kick him out and he moves on. And so he's in Athens and Greece. He's waiting on his companions. Okay, he doesn't live there. We have no reason to believe he didn't just show up that day that this, that this is discussing and talking about. We've got every reason to believe this is his first day in Athens. Um, he's never been. Uh, this is the second missionary journey. He's never been to Athens before. He would never have known these people, and they would never have heard the, the Jesus that he preaches about yet because it has just started pouring out of Jerusalem. Okay? Um, so... We see in verse 16, the Holy Spirit provoked Paul. And this is a really strong term. It's stronger than it sounds. It's like to really stimulate or sharpen your senses. It's like a Gatorade bath at the end of a, you know, ice-cold Gatorade bath at the end of a game. I mean, it's just, everything's heightened. You're just at attention, okay? And that's what, we, that's what the Bible tells us is happening to Paul. And I think we're really bad about giving this Holy Spirit's credit to ourselves and giving the credit of the Holy Spirit to our conscience or uh, a good thought that we had in our brain when really all the per good and perfect things come from above. And so we see right now Paul, the greatest example of a follower of Christ that we've really got, and he's being led by the Spirit to go and do the rest of Acts 17, and that's really important. And so we need to start listening and understanding that it's the Spirit talking to us a lot more than we give Him credit for. When you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and somebody's on your brain, that's a Holy Spirit thing if you're a believer. And that means pray for this person, and I'll tell you why later. When, when you're in your office and something pops in your mind for the person you work with, it's a Holy Spirit thing, and you need to know you need to address that, not just to write it off. And the farther you get along in, in your faith, the more you're going you're gonna to recognize, oh, that's not just me, that's just not a good thought that I had. That's the Holy Spirit. And he's going to develop those fruits of the Spirit from Galatians 5 in you. Um, a couple of scriptures if you want to write down. In, I believe, all four of the Gospels. I, I, give you, I give you two occasions of it, but I think it's all four. Um, Mark 13, 11 and John 16, 13. And it's a little bit of a different context, but Jesus is talking in both of them about the Holy Spirit of promise. And he says, he's telling the disciples when they're in prison, because they all ended up dying martyrs' deaths, um, he was telling them, don't worry about the words that you'll need to say. The Holy Spirit will put them in your mouth. And there's really no biblical reason to believe that that doesn't apply to us today. Um, we might not be in prison for our faith here, um, but he very much does put words in our mouth. And we need to acknowledge that and to act on those. Um, so, the result of the prompting of the Holy Spirit was that he was reasoning. And it's a Greek word. I don't, you know, I don't want to try and act like I'm all smart or something, but I looked this up in a book. I won't do that whole Greek thing all day that pastors are supposed to do. Um, but it is, this is a really cool word. It says, um, it's dialegome. And it, it is what it sounds like. What word do you hear in that? dialogue. It's really, it's, it's, it, it makes this sentence mean much different. Because when we read this at first, where it's, we might want to say Paul's standing up on a, on a rock or a box and he's pointing and, and he's yelling at them. But what it says is he was reasoning with them. And it's a two-sided word. It means dialogue, conversation. Okay? 
So Paul's in a brand new place, never been there, doesn't know these people. He's entering into spiritual dialogue with people. And look back at what it says. Look back at what it says in the scripture. With Jews, with God-fearing Gentiles, you can kind of lump them together. They were in the synagogue, but even they are drastically different. The God-fearing Gentile doesn't have a religious history. The Jew is just drowning in it. Um, he was reasoning with them in the synagogue and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. He was telling anybody around about Jesus. He was Anybody that was around, he was having spiritual conversations with them. We're going to break down marketplace in a minute, what that really means. But here's what Paul didn't do, okay? And you really need to get this. Paul didn't save the gospel for well-established relationships, okay? He didn't save it until he felt comfortable in a relationship. Um, the gospel is, your, is for your best friend, the marketplace, and everybody in between. And the gospel is for everyone and powerful enough to change anyone at any time. Okay? That's why we can say point number one is the gospel is universal. Because it is not just for the person that you're comfortable around enough to drop your kids off at their house. It's also for the person that just moved in next door. Um, it's for your coworker, not just the one that you've worked with for 10 years. It's for the one that just started sharing an office with you. We don't see Paul waiting to build these relationships and saving this message of salvation because he knows that the gospel is powerful enough to change in an instant. Okay? Do you believe that? Like, because it's something that I think, I think our actions make it or show that we struggle to believe that in America, that the gospel needs a little help. But in reality... It is the power. We're just a messenger that delivers that word. And if you want to take that one step farther, Paul, there are sermons that reference Paul every week in, in every county of this country. Nobody even told him the gospel but Jesus himself. We, we were in Acts 9 a few uh, months ago. Nobody even witnessed to Paul. Jesus kicked him off his horse and said, I'm Jesus, you will worship me. I'm your Savior now. And he said, okay. So the message is so powerful that it doesn't even require us, but God is allowing us to present it. It's this whole ambassador um, mindset in um, 2 Corinthians. Paul says that we're ambassadors of Jesus Christ, and it's almost as if, and I'm paraphrasing because I forgot to write that one down, but it's almost as if Jesus himself is making... Um, is speaking through us to draw us to redemption in God. We're ambassadors. We don't answer for it. It's all back on him. But he says, I want you to proclaim it. So here's kind of where we're at in society, and here's where I have been at. And a lot of this morning is Jesus teaching me and changing me and convicting me and calling me to repentance about how, I'm, how I work with the message of salvation. Okay? Um, We've become a culture of relational evangelism. And everybody could, could finish this quote. Preach the word at all times and when necessary use what? Words. We've all heard that and we have attributed it to St. Francis of Assisi, which is a fantastic name. Um, 
Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. And it means this is what it means. Live out the love of Jesus to everybody that's around you. Let them see the message in you and they will be they can be changed by that. And they can become so comfortable and have such a good friendship and relationship with you that there will come a time where you can share that gospel with them. Live it out first. Um, there actually if you get the outline, there's a pretty good article telling you why he never said that and there's no evidence why he did say that and the only evidence really from his teaching and his followers is that he was kind of the opposite of that and told people quite often about Jesus verbally um, this is kind of bad news alright there's a, there's a place for this and we certainly want to build relationships and, and use those relationships as a chance to pour in the gospel but I think it's become a crutch it did for me so can I just confess to you that this became how um, I thought that the gospel worked, and maybe, maybe I'm not alone. Um, here's what we say when we, we practice relational evangelism alone. Um, or in another term, or in another sense, when we, when we have to craft the perfect scenario with somebody to tell them about Jesus. Here's what we're saying. We're saying, I do the work, and the power of convincing, and the power of my convincing saved souls. We are saying that the gospel isn't relevant to your life until I'm relevant in your life. We're saying that the gospel isn't quite powerful enough to transform her just yet. We're saying I'm the key to his soul, and when I'm ready, I will get the job done. We're saying I've got more confidence in me than Jesus. And we're saying, no man comes to the Father but by, insert your name here. Like, do you see that? Does that make sense? I'm not saying you don't build relationships with the hopes of sharing the gospel. What I am saying this morning, what God is telling me, is that if this is the only way that the gospel comes out of us, is just looking like Jesus, then we're idolizing ourselves. We're idolizing ourselves. We are worshiping our readiness our preparedness, and we are in full fear of man because it's all about not wanting to hurt feelings and get rejected. Um, 2 Timothy 1.7 God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of what? Power. Okay? He didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power. We, go, we all go back to the Holy Spirit of promise that's within us that made us something new. Jesus said, I filled you with the helper and he is not a spirit of fear but of power. Um, real quickly, Jesus' final instructions to us were to share the good news that he would give us and that he would give us the Holy Spirit to do so. It's good news. It's not good demonstration. It's good news. And news is a verbal thing. We have to verbalize it. Um, there's a, a quote in the notes from a, the president of Wheaton College named Dwayne Lifton, and he says this, It's simply impossible to preach the gospel without words. The gospel is inherently verbal, and preaching the gospel is inherently verbal behavior. This changes everything if you're anything like me. Um, imagine if you never verbalize your love for a spouse or a child or a family member. 
What if you never told them that you love them? Would they know? Maybe. Maybe they would get it based on how you act around them. But it's not one of those things that you just don't verbalize, right? How many of you don't really care that your spouse ever tells you that they love you? I don't want that. Like, we tell each other we love, we love each other every day. We tell our daughter that we love her every day. Think about that with your child. What if your child never verbalized it? But, man, when my daughter comes up and hugs me and pats me on the back and says, Oh, Daddy, I love you. That's, that's the world right there. It's everything. There's just some things that have to be verbalized. Um, so we don't have to build the perfect scenario we just have to tell the truth because who does the work? The gospel does the work. All right, so let's go to number two. So the first one was the truth of the gospel is universal. It's for everybody. We don't have to create a scenario in which we think it's going to work because it can change with or without us. Number two is that the presentation of the gospel is contextual. The presentation of the gospel is contextual. Let's go to verse 18, and I'll tell you what we mean by that, meaning that it has everything how we present it has everything to do with where people are at, the culture that they're in. So let's read through, we'll start at chapter, or verse 18 in chapter 17. So it just said he was in the marketplace telling everybody about Jesus. Verse 18, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange thing to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Let's take a pause. Let's back up. All right, the, that's Athens, okay? That's what they do. They just think about stuff, okay? Sounds like government. I mean, they just think all the time. And, and they've even got this kind of pseudo-governing department of think. It's, it's called the Oropagus, and that's literally what they do. They, they, there's so much new thought process coming through Athens. I mean, this is home of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Alexander the Great. All these guys, they were in this marketplace at one time. Um, the place that Paul's getting ready to go, Socrates stood on that same Mars Hill that we're going to talk about, and and had to give, um, had to back up his thought. So you've heard of all these guys, and there's so much philosophy come through these guys that we talk about today. This is where they're from. This is, this is the philosophical and cultural hub of the world. And so Paul comes in, it was something brand new, and the Oropagus, which is this, like I said, this kind of governing council of thinkers who take you out to this hill and say, yeah, that's cool, or no, nah, that's a bad idea, we don't really like that. They get wind of Paul's new message that, hey, there is a God named Jesus, and he died and was resurrected, and he saves souls, um, and he's the only way. So they, they hear this, and they're like, we want to know more about this. Um, so they take him to Mars Hill. It was literally a hill um, right outside of the city. It was dedicated to Mars or Ares, the god of war. Because remember, in Greek mythology, there are just tons and tons of gods everything, like the god of chairs. I mean, just weird things. It just didn't make sense. Um, so, thought about expanding on that, but we would waste time. Um, so, verse 22 
okay? He's taken out there, and let's see. Here's how he contextualizes the gospel, okay? To the Jews, he always, he's got a common ground of the Old Testament. He believes in Jesus, they don't, but they both have the Old Testament. That's their Bible, that's what they grew up on. He, he starts there in the Old Testament, which from beginning to end talks about a Messiah that's coming to redeem mankind. And Paul says, look, this is Jesus. That's how he ministers, that's how he shares the gospel with the Jews. It's a different ballgame with the Greeks. They don't have any of that. I mean, it's, it's square one, start from scratch. So he's got to find a different way to contextualize or to relate the gospel. And, and hear this before we go any further. Um, a, a great quote from um, Mark Driscoll is that, and let me find it so I don't say it wrong, because I probably will. Um, the mission of Christians is not to make the gospel relevant. It's to show the relevance of the gospel. It's not for us to say, this is irrelevant, let me craft it to make it relevant. It's to show that it already is relevant. And we've got to figure out a way to show them that. Um, so Paul starts with, it says, 20, verse 22 says, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, observe, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. He's saying, we're both religious. And here's how he knew it. Um, remember when the Holy Spirit says, hey, Paul, look at all these idols. Um, it was, it's estimated that at that time there were more than 30,000 statues of idols, public ones. That doesn't even count the ones that are in people's homes. But 30,000 public statues in Athens, not Greece, but in Athens, dedicated to their various gods. And so it's not hard to walk in and say, oh, these people, these folks are religious. Look at all this. And, and so Paul says, look, we've got a common ground. We're both spiritual people. And here's what goes on. And, and here's, here's where we know that Paul knows their culture and their background. Um, about 600 years prior, there's this dude, I'll probably butcher his name, Epimenides. Okay? Everybody say Epimenides. Okay? He was kind of this philosopher slash poet, and there were all these plagues going on in Athens, and they were all like, the gods are mad at us, they hate us, they're killing us with plagues. And they were like, well, there's like four billion of them, which one is it? Which one did we make angry? And so this guy, um, being really bright, said, let's get a bunch of sheep, and we'll release them in the city, and the gods will direct the sheep to their temples and their idols, and wherever the sheep go, we will burn the sheep as sacrifice, the gods will be happy, and the plagues will go away. Great idea, right? Except, um, except it wasn't, and so the sheep, they didn't get led by anything but hunger or sleepiness, and so they just laid down everywhere. So they just laid down, took a nap, ate some grass here, and the people were like, oh no, there's all these gods we don't know about, so there mu we must have missed some. So what we'll do is place an idol to the unknown god. You get it? You see where it went? They just stuck more statues in the ground. Well, we, this must be God of something. We don't know his name, but he's here because he brought a sheep. So they made all these idols to the unknown God, and they sacrificed sheep to them, and it was a brilliant thing. So Paul knew this, and the Holy Spirit prompted Paul, no, 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 tell them who the unknown God really is. And so he went into this council, and let's pick up from 
verse 23, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So all, straight off the bat, he tells them, you guys are kind of ignorant of the real God. Um, verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Take a little break right there. Um, here's how he contextualizes it. He says, you say there might be another God that you don't know. Let me tell you who this God is. Um, Another thing that we see him to do, he found, he found common grain, uh, ground on their spirituality. And the next verse, um, verse, 29, or verse 28, he says, For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. That's a reference to pop culture in, Greek, in, in Greece. Um, that was Sheep Guy, actually, funny enough. He quotes Sheep Guy and says, well, this guy said that, kind of gives these attributes of God. So he sort of saw it and got it. And then he goes on to say um, in the rest of verse 29, um, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Um, for he references another poet, in verse 28 that says, we are, the ch we are God's children. And that's an, another poet. I won't try to pronounce his name. But so Paul goes in there. He knows their spiritual background. <laughs> he, he gets the whole uh, unknown God thing. The Holy Spirit teaches him that. He knows their poets. He knows some of the things that they say that are sort of God-ish. Sort of get it. But what he says, here's how he contextualizes. He says, you sort of get it. But let me, let me help you understand it and show you the truth of it. It really is Jesus. Because he drops the hammer a little bit later and goes into the gospel of Jesus. Um, but before we get to that, this is like, how does this flesh out in, in our life today? The culture's different. You know, we're not, we're not as sit around and think and talk. We're very musical. Um, this might be like taking a Katy Perry song that your friend loves, and it's got some spiritual undertones or a movie that has some spiritual pieces to it, and you watch that with your friend that doesn't believe in Jesus, and you've got an avenue to say, hey, how do you feel about this part? Oh, okay, well, let me tell you what I think. That's contextualizing it. It's taking the culture that people are at and turning it to Jesus. Some youth pastors in the, in the room might call that the J-turn, like that. So cheesy. It's taking the culture, meeting the culture where the culture is at, and turning things to Jesus. Um, so how can you do this in the workplace? How can you do it around your family or in the marketplace, which was the cultural hub? It was, it was, the marketplace was Facebook in the flesh, okay? That's where he was at, and this is what he started to do. Um, 
How can you better know and be part of the culture that you're in? How can you start spiritual conversations? Um, can we just be real practical and say some of, the, some of the things that you can do to start spiritual conversations like Paul was doing is to ask things like this. Can I pray for you? Everybody would like to be prayed for because most people actually do believe in God. Most people believe there is some sort of God and that he has the capability to hear. So everybody wants to be prayed for. Ask questions like, do you ever think about spiritual things? What's your opinion about Jesus, about Christianity? What do you think God is like? Do you ever feel like there's something more in life? Has anybody ever genuinely told you about Jesus' love for you? Can we just stop for a second and say, I'm not sure, or I see a lot of churches that don't really preach the right gospel. And so I fear that people walk out hearing a false gospel. So sometimes I think people have made their rejection of Jesus but never actually heard the right message. So maybe that's a great question to ask. Has anybody ever genuinely told you about Jesus' love for you? And making sure that their message that they rejected was actually the real message. And what do you think about happens to your soul after you die? These are, the, these are the kind of questions that we can be asking people. Because you know what your unchurched um, office mate probably doesn't want to talk about? Like a gospel quartet that you watched at your grandparents' church. Maybe, maybe they do, but probably not. You know what they probably would like to talk about? The Star Trek movie that just came out. And then in that conversation, also the infinite universe that the Enterprise is in. And then the, the God that maybe created it all and might love us. And if, if God's there, then the Jesus that he sent to earth to save us. It's contextualizing it. It's taking the culture that we live in not being scared of it, but using that as an avenue to say Jesus is God, Jesus is real, Jesus saved. Um, and here's, you know, and there might be, and as I said, there might be some of you that are unbelievers in the room this morning, and this probably sounds manipulative to you, okay? And I just wanted to address that. Okay, sure, it probably is. But if this is manipulative, then every relationship we have is manipulative to a degree. Because what we do in relationships is we say, I like X, Y, Z, here's why, and I think that you should too. We do it with music. You want to convince me that country music's not horrible, but I'm not buying it, but you want me to hear it? I could write a country song right now. You want me to do it? Yeah. Heard no's and yes, we'll skip it. Uh, you wanna, you, we do it about sports teams. We do it, we do it about... Um, we do it about food. We do it about clothes. That doesn't match. Yes, it does. Read this magazine. We do it about everything. We do it about politics. How many of you have a friend or a relative that is, that is a, a liberal Democrat and, or you are a conservative Republican? Do you ever get together? Do you ever talk about politics? Maybe you avoid it. Sometimes you talk about politics and you're trying to tell each other why, why you're correct. Does it mean you don't love each other? Does it mean that the relationship is fake? Does it mean that if he says no, it's just not going to happen? Does it mean that you stop the relationship? No. Right? I mean, so then it's the same thing. The only difference is that the message of Christians, as we build relationships with non-Christians, our message has eternal weight. Our message is life or death. Okay? And we really believe it is. So, so if you're, if you're a non-Christian here this morning and, and this feels manipulative... 
Can I just tell you the heart of it is that we genuinely believe the message of Jesus is a life or death issue. And that if you died in your sin without Jesus as your Savior, then there is a real place called hell reserved for you. And that is, that's, that's genuinely what we believe. So what kind of friend would we be if we didn't tell you that? Like, you can't genuinely, that's what God's telling me, you can't say I love this person and not just go ahead and tell them the truth. Is that fair enough? Um, that goes into the next part, and I know we got to fly. The, the third part is that the message of the gospel is confrontational. It just is. The message is confrontational, um, and this is verse 30 and 31, but let me recap for you what Paul has already told them. He already told them, and you can reread later, he already told them that the God of the Bible is the only God. They believed in many gods. He already told them that the God of the Bible created everything and is separate from creation, and many of them were um, pantheists and believed that God was creation and creation was God and weird things like that. He says God isn't dependent on you and he doesn't need you to build houses for him. That was Greek culture. God sort of, the gods need us, and we build them these temples, and they live here, and we give them things and make them happy, keep them happy. He says God doesn't need that, and he's already told them that God's personal, loving, and saving, and they don't have a God that saves in their culture. So he's already completely painted this crazy picture for them, and then he goes into verse 30 and says this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So what he says to him is, you have this unknown God thing, and you didn't know who it was out of ignorance, but now God sent me. Here's who it is. It's Jesus. Jesus proved it to the world by dying and being physically and spiritually raised from the dead, not just in spirit, but also in body. His body came out of the grave three days later, and he ascended into heaven, and he is the Savior that reigns eternally. That's what he tells these people. It's a confrontational message, right? Um, I mean, there's just no getting around that. It's a complete 180 from what they already believed. And this ties in a lot with the first point that the gospel's for everybody. It's universal. It's not just for the ones that we feel comfortable to tell that to. Okay? And that's where I've been for a long time. And I, I, that's what God is, t is telling me right now. The gospel is confrontational and offensive. First uh, Corinthians 1.18 says the gospel, it, the gospel is foolishness to the people that don't believe it. Okay? It's there. It says it. Let's just roll with that. Um... Short and sweet, Jesus tells us that no man comes to the Father but by him. So Jesus is offensive. Jesus is controversial. He says more than once, I'm God and I'm the only way. So people that say, I love your Christ but I hate your Christians, I want to say, well, you never even read the Bible then because you can't think he's not offensive if you've actually read what he says because he tells you time and time again that he is the only God. So Jesus is offensive and we've got to stop apologizing for him. We need to stop apologizing for the fact that the gospel is controversial. It's, it's confrontational. We've got to stop apologizing for it. And um, so this is why we prefer to live the gospel and build long relationships before we're comfortable enough to verbalize it. 
This is why, right? We're just honest. Th this is the reason. You know, it, it's because we don't want to be rejected, but because it's also a really hard message. Um, it's not an easy thing to tell. So we want to wait until we're comfortable and the situation is right because we love the person. We don't want to hurt them with a controversial message. When God is telling us this morning, you can't really love that person if you don't go ahead and tell them the truth. If your neighbor's house is burning down, this is a horrible example. I'm talking about fire, and I'm not trying to preach that. But if your neighbor's house is burning down, is the thought process, oh, gosh, that's horrible. His roof is on fire. He's really going to be bummed out about this. I don't know if I'm ready to tell it. We just met. If I'm the one that tell him that his house is on fire, then you know he might take his frustration out on me. I don't know what to do. Like, you don't do that, right? You wouldn't do that. You would scream and panic and call the fire department and get in touch with him and tell him, get out of the house, your house is on fire, right? It's the same with the gospel in, in a weird metaphorical kind of way that there's not really time to wait. There, the, it's a life and death issue now. So if you love him or her, don't wait until later. They need to know what you believe right now. Um, sooner or later, you're going to have to tell an unbelieving person that they are sinful like you and that there are eternal consequences for that sin, but that Jesus came with a solution, John 3.16, right? Uh, sooner or later, you're going to get to that point, so maybe get there sooner than later, right? I've, I've heard a, a sermon of a pastor saying, I just got to this point where when I met somebody, I'd be like, well, I'm a pastor, so do you want to do this now or you want to do this later? <laughs> and I kind of sat there and laughed a little bit, but I'm thinking, okay, maybe that's not, maybe that's not that bad of an idea. Maybe I just need to, to bring it up. Because sooner or later I've got to tell them a hard truth because I'm his messenger. Maybe we should just go ahead and do it. So, so the truth of the gospel is universal. It's for everyone and it's powerful enough to change them right then. The presentation of the gospel is contextual. Wrap it around your culture. Make it uh, show that it is already relevant. The message of the gospel is confrontational. The last thing, the reception of the gospel is variable. And Paul really hit on this last week a lot. So I'm not going to try and recreate the wheel here. The message, of the, the response of the gospel is variable. Um, Acts 17, here's, here's what the people said after Paul got done. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, because some of them believed, um, most of them either believed that there was a resurrection, but it was only your soul, and that God would never come back for your physical body. And the other ones believed that when you died, you were annihilated, and so you just ceased to exist. So it really is nuts to them. Uh, when they heard of the resurrection, some of them began to sneer, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And then verse 33, so Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them also was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. That might be five people. I don't know. I mean, he was in the middle of the marketplace. There, maybe there were a million people there. I don't know. I mean, it was like Concord Mills Boulevard or something. Which, that's more like hell. So, I mean, but he was in the middle of the marketplace and then in the middle of the most influential men in the whole city of Athens and maybe five or ten people walked away believing in Jesus. Did he fail? No, because he didn't do the work, right? Um... Many will ridicule the gospel. More will walk away indifferent from it. Some will repent and be transformed 
and we can't dictate the response. We can only be faithful to share the message. Okay? So, uh, one, last, one last thing I want you to hear. You'll never get a response to a gospel you don't share. Can you say it again? You'll never get any response to a gospel you don't share. You might not get rejected, but also you're not going to see somebody transformed with it either because you didn't tell them about it. Maybe God knocks them off a horse and saves them later. I don't know. He can't even do whatever he wants. He's God. But you will never hear a response to a gospel you don't share. Um, write this scripture down. It's very, very important. Romans 10, 13 through 15. Romans 10, 13 through 15. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him if they don't believe in him? How will they believe him if they have never heard about him? How will they hear about him unless you tell them? And that's huge, right? That's God telling us, they just need to hear it, and then let me do the work. Let me do the transforming. You just tell them, okay? And listen to me guide you through it. So this morning, and I don't want it to be like, I don't want it to be like a sad morning because I feel like I get through all this and I had to, and it's, been a, it's been a difficult journey for me and it's been kind of a journey that cuts like a knife for me from God that I realized that I've, I've been unfaithful to actually verbalize the gospel and I've had to repent for that. So it's a hard thing and it's a difficult thing this morning to, and I don't want it to feel like a sad thing because what we're talking about, the whole thing we're talking about is, is good news and it's a message of hope. And it's a, it's, a, it's a message, it's a love story. And um, so can we just wrap it up with here's, here's the good news. Here's what you, the non-believer in here this morning, here's what changed our life and we want to change yours. And those of you who are Christian this morning, here's what changed your life and we want you to verbalize to change other people's lives. Um, it is that God created us he created this world. He put man in it. Man was perfect. And man sinned against God. And then everybody got lumped in after that. And so we're all sinful. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is a perfect and holy God, so he can't be in community with sin. Uh, we also learn from the Bible that while you can do some sacrifices and, and do some things to forgive some of your sins temporarily. We're still sinners and it's, it's going to come back because we're not perfect. And so there was no way for mankind to have forgiveness of sin. And the, the consequence, the Bible tells us, for that sin is eternity separated from God. So God made a plan and it's a message of hope and love. God said, you can't attain it. You can never earn it. I am perfect. I will come as the form of a baby, live the life of a perfect man, willingly lay my life down, Jesus, on the cross, so that you may have it freely. And so that's the, the gospel is one that you, you come to Jesus and says, you did all the work. I didn't do a thing. And by grace, the grace of God, you did everything. And so the Bible says that when we call on the name of the Lord, we can be saved. And we will not just believe in what he, not just believe that he's real, but believe that what he did was good enough to save our souls. That he will 
put his righteousness on us, his holiness on us, that he will forgive us of our sins, and that when God looks at us, he no longer sees sinful Philip, he sees Jesus. And it's enough to hold him for eternity. And then so that when we die, the consequence doesn't fall on us of our sin because we've already been forgiven. The result then is eternity in heaven with God. I mean, that's it. And it could probably take about five minutes shorter than that. So here's what I want you to do. If, if as we've talked about Jesus all morning long, if you, you're, inside of you have been welling up saying, I never, I never made that Jesus my Lord and Savior. I never repented and made him my king. Then I guess you just need to go and make a decision for that this morning, right? Um, and, and we want to give you an opportunity to do that. I don't know if it would make you more comfortable if we're playing some music in the background or what, but let's just do that. So if, you know, to, to spare like an altar call thing, but if this morning, if you would say I'm not a believer, but I want to buy in on it, let's do it. Your life will be transformed forever because we genuinely believe that. That's what we're all about is Jesus here this morning. So do that. If, if you would say I am a believer, I've lived a lot like Phil in the sense that I've not verbalized what I believe in, then I want you to repent and change it. Because, again, it's a message of life and death. It's not, oh, you have bad breath, and I kind of hate to tell you that because it would hurt your feelings. It's, oh, you're a sinner and you will go to hell without Jesus. It's life or death. So, we don't have to pick up the megaphone and stand on the street corner. We do need to vocalize this truth, right? So, to the believers in the room, homework for you. Write out the message. Write, just write out the message that you would share with people. Write out the message of Jesus, the gospel. And then pray about who, starting this week, not starting next week because we don't want to go back to our comfort thing, but starting this week, who needs to hear it? And who you need to step up as a, as a proper ambassador and just tell them the gospel. Pray about that. Who needs to hear it? How can you share it? that right um, I would like to pray for you but if if any of you this morning say hey I want to I want to repent and make Jesus my Lord and Savior and turn my life over to him just stand up just do it just stand up and come to us and we'll walk you through that and you can join in this faith with us at the gathering walk through it together um, or when you or if I start praying and that's you just come and tell me to stop praying and somebody else can pray and I'll go pray with you personally. Um, we'd like to pray with you now. Is that cool? And uh, we'll walk out of here as ambassadors just ready to give the message.